comes from Richard's chapter 18, verses 18 through 23. Please rise for the reading of God's word. <clears throat> A certain ruler asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Why do you call me good? Jesus answered. No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not commit adultery. Do not murder. Do not steal. Do not give false testimony. Honor your father and mother. All these I have kept since I was a boy, he said. When Jesus heard this, he said to him, You still lack one thing. Sell everything you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come, follow me. When he heard this, he became very sad because he was a man of great wealth. Thank you. I took this picture at uh, the dress rehearsal for the Canadian Badlands Passion Play a few years ago, and it depicts the theme for our new series entitled Person of Interest, looking at some of the interesting people that Jesus met in the Gospels. And this first episode is entitled Stairway to Heaven, with apologies to Led Zeppelin, but it's about this rich young ruler whose encounter with Jesus is recorded in three Gospels. And all three passages mention that he was rich. Matthew tells us that he was young, and Luke, that he was a ruler. So he had wealth, power, and youth. So for a millennial, it doesn't get any better than that. Then why would he be interested in Jesus? Well, to his credit, he was also a deeply religious man who was deeply troubled by something. He was hoping that Jesus could help him. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word today, and just thank you that um, there's always a way that your scriptures connect with our lives and the things that we experience. Thank you so much that uh, you can speak to each of us in a very personal way today, even as you already have through the various aspects of this service that has been so meaningful. And we thank you that you've already revealed yourself among us. And so now, Lord, we just offer this time to you to listen, to be attentive, and to respond. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. People are interesting, especially those of you who are unique just like everybody else. When the Son of God came to Earth, he didn't come to save the planet or protect the environment. He was here to rescue an endangered species, humanity. Not because we were on the verge of extinction, but because we were trending towards eternal damnation. And that's why Jesus came down the highway to hell to seek and to save the lost. And along the way, he met some very interesting people, like the rich young man he encountered on the road to Jericho. It says in Luke 18, verse 18, a certain ruler asked him, good teacher, 
what must I do to inherit eternal life? I would love to have people ask me those kinds of questions. But they don't do, do that anymore. The most common question I hear is, how are you? If you're in Africa, they'd ask, how's your skeleton? Are you uh, enjoying the weather, they might ask, or do you want fries with that? What a thrill it would be to get a real question sometimes, like, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Now, this incident is also recorded in the Gospel of Mark, chapter 10, where we learn a bit more about the urgency of this inquiry. Mark 10, 17 says, he ran up to him and fell on his knees before him. This ruler was intensely interested in getting an answer. This was not an academic question, the kind that you would ask a rabbi to, uh, as a sort of a theological icebreaker. This man was desperate to get a straight answer. Why do you call me good, Jesus answered. No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not commit adultery, do not murder, do not steal, do not give false testimony. Honor your father and mother. All these I have kept since I was a boy, he said. This man was obviously very religious. He took God seriously. And to the best of his ability, he tried to obey the commandments. He may have even been the most righteous man in all of Israel. So what more could God expect? And yet he knew there was something missing. He didn't know if he'd done enough. All his life he'd been climbing up that spiral staircase of religion. One ritual at a time, one duty at a time, one good deed after another. There was all this obedience and sacrifice and cleansing, and then you repeat. And along his ascent, he passed by many others who were less committed and less worthy. And the further he climbed, the steeper it got. And as he reached the higher elevations, the oxygen became thin, but he pressed on towards the summit, hoping that somewhere he would get to the point of no return, where he could feel the warmth of God's favor and have the assurance of salvation. But instead, it just got colder. The winds of doubt became bitter. Because, and because the grand staircase branched out in many directions, he wondered if he'd maybe taken the wrong way. I need a guide. I need someone who knows the way. And so he thought of Jesus. If anyone can show me the most direct route to eternal life, it is that good teacher. What must I do? to inherit eternal life. Well, Jesus immediately detected the flaw in his question. Good teacher? What do you mean by that? You come to me as a good man who doesn't know how to get to heaven. You ask me because you think I am a good man. You imply that my goodness is greater than yours, so you want to learn the secret of my success. But goodness is not the stairway to heaven or salvation. No one is good except God alone. You see, that's the mistake that makes every religion an exercise in futility. Because religion at its best 
can only produce good sinners. People who are devout and sincere and loving and unselfish and lost. Romans 3.23 says, All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. This ruler was a good sinner who realized he wasn't good enough. And to his credit, he wasn't deceiving himself. He wasn't being dishonest. He was willing to admit his failure. What more do I have to do? Now, let me say this. Let me shock you a little bit and say that it is possible to get to heaven by being good. It's theoretically possible. But how good do you have to be? It says it right here. You'd have to be as good as God. Well, that's not going to work for any of us. Goodness defines God. God is good all the time. Our goodness doesn't measure up to God's criteria any more than a kid's tricycle could compete in the Tour de France. When it comes to eternal life, our goodness is not legal tender. Why do you call me good, Jesus answered. No one is good. No one. Except God alone. Now, do you see how close this young man is? Jesus asked him, why do you call me good? The question is actually an invitation to discover who Jesus really was. Come and see. Because Jesus was much more than just a good man. Is that all you see? Or do you see something else? Jesus exhibited the very goodness of God because he was fully God. But would the ruler detect that? Why you call me good? No? You don't see it? Okay, let's play by the rules. You know the commandments. Do not commit adultery, do not murder, etc., etc. Yeah, all these. All these I've kept since I was a boy. Wow, he was the Roger Federer of righteousness. He set the record. What an outstanding career. His achievements may never be equaled. In fact, Jesus was impressed. Mark chapter 10, verse 21 says, Jesus looked at him and loved him. He was so sincere. And yet, it wasn't quite enough. There was something missing. And here it is, verse 22. When Jesus heard this, he said to him, you still lack one thing. Sell everything you have and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come and follow me. I love the way the Bible simplifies life. Jesus told Martha, only one thing is needed. Paul declared this one thing I do. The rich man wasn't uh, told, here's 999 things that you need to do to please God. It just came down to one thing. Sometimes when you're talking with people who are searching for God, you realize there's, it's become so complicated for them. 
But it's just really all about one thing. That's all they need to understand. And I think that's why religion is important. Religion gives us the best opportunity we will ever have to try to save ourselves. So that after we've done it all, we finally realize there's still something missing. If religion can teach you that being good is not enough, then it has served you well. The worst religions are the ones that sort of anesthetize you with a false hope or a counterfeit peace so that you never ask for more. Religious effort should result in frustration and despair, and that despair which should force you directly towards Jesus. You still lack one thing. Sell everything you have and give it to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, then you come and follow me. But wait a minute, it just got more complicated. Jesus said you still lack one thing, and now he tells him two things. Go and sell, come and follow. I'm not good at math, but that's more than one. If he lacked one thing, which one is it? Well, we know it can't be giving everything to the poor, that doesn't equal eternal life. In 1 Corinthians 13, 3, Paul says, if I give all I possess to the poor and I surrender my body to the flames and have not love, I gain nothing. You cannot get eternal life by giving everything away to the poor. You can do that and still fall short. So it has to be the other thing. Come and follow me. You want a guide? I'm available. In fact, in John 14, 6, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. So Jesus is not just an experienced Sherpa guide to the higher altitudes of religious aspiration. Someone who can take us to the threshold of eternal life in heaven. He is the only way. When it comes to eternal life, you it's useless, pointless to climb a stairway. You have to go through a door, a gate. John 10, 9, the good shepherd says, I am the gate. It's all about Jesus. It's not about finding the way to heaven. It's about finding Jesus Christ. So the answer to the question, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? The answer is come and follow me. Simple enough. Except that, in this particular case, the ruler wouldn't be able to follow Jesus until he gave away the treasure that he had deposited on earth and changed banks and deposit that treasure in heaven. Because this good sinner was an unintentional idol worshiper. When Jesus reviewed the Ten Commandments, he didn't mention them all. Did you notice that? He only mentioned the ones that referred to our relationship with people. He left out the first ones. You shall have no other gods. You shall not make an idol. This good sinner had a remarkable resume in the area of horizontal righteousness in dealings with people. 
The problem was his vertical relationship with God. He was a rich man in a poor country. And even if he'd gained his wealth honestly, it occupied most of his attention. He was thinking about it all the time. All of his investments, how he could get a better rate of interest, how he could secure his assets. You see, being rich is a full-time job if you do it right, with lots of overtime. And now he had this invitation to follow Jesus. Well, where would he find the time to do that? I have to collect rent. I, I have to pay bills. I have to reinvest and then re-reinvest. I have appointments at the bank, I'm meeting clients, I have to sue a man who bored a sum he refuses to pay back. Maybe that was the problem. Righteousness was not his main concern. His riches occupied a huge portion of his heart. And it was hard to balance these priorities, so Jesus decided to break the stalemate and force him to make a choice. Sell everything you have, give to the poor, you will have treasure in heaven, then come and follow me. When he heard this, he became very sad because he was a man of great wealth. All of a sudden, he wasn't interested in Jesus anymore. Mark chapter 10, verse 22 says, at this the man's face fell, he went away sad because he had great wealth. This would be the last opportunity he would have to meet Jesus because Jesus was on his way to Jerusalem. And days later, he would be on the cross. This was the last opportunity, and he made a decision. You see, most people would follow Jesus as long as he doesn't ask too much as long as it doesn't cost too much, as long as it doesn't take too much time, as long as it doesn't interfere with our treasure here on earth. And that's really the key. Because Jesus addressed this very issue in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 6 when he said, do not, do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth. I've done that. I think we've all done that. Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moth and rust do not destroy, where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. That's the problem with treasures on earth. If you have a treasure, your heart will be there also. That was the problem with this rich young ruler. That's what Jesus was after. Jesus wanted his heart. But he couldn't get it because the current tenant was not yet evicted. Go and sell everything you have. Give it to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. Jesus wanted his heart when he heard this, he became very sad, and he went away because he had great wealth. 
In the same passage in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus identifies God's chief rival. He says a few verses later in Matthew 6, 24, no one can serve two masters. Either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. Our hearts were not made to be loyal to two competing interests, two masters. If you try to serve both God and money, God is going to lose every single time. Your affections will gradually shift away from God towards money. How many times have we seen this? There was a very vibrant Cambodian church in Edmonton that grew out of a refugee camp in Vietnam. There was just all these Cambodians being saved. And eventually they came to Edmonton and started a church, a very dynamic church. By the time we got there, there was 12 people left because they had gotten jobs and they'd gotten money, and the treasures began to multiply. And so slowly but surely, God was not that important to them anymore. It was to the 12 who were still there, but to the other 40 or 50 that left, their heart was elsewhere. It happens because money, let's face it, money has got to be the greatest thing in the world. Isn't it? I mean, money is the key that opens any door. If you want something, all you need is money. You want to be entertained, you want to travel, you want to taste great food, you want to have better clothes, you want more stuff. It just takes money. We have these massive shopping centers that display all the things that money can buy. And if sometimes if you manage to have enough money, you could even go to Costco. And you can buy one of those huge chunks of beef that's the size of a rugby ball. And then you get a new barbecue, which I don't think they sell individually. You have to get them in a six-pack. But then you got five backups. All it takes is money. It's the greatest invention ever. It, it makes all your dreams come true. No wonder it's God's primary competition. In fact, you could paraphrase, paraphrase 2 Corinthians 9, 8, and money is able to make all credit abound to you so that in all stores, at all times, having all you need, you will abound in every good purchase. And with money, there's immediate gratification. If I have enough money, I can go out right after church and buy an ice cream cone at McDonald's. Immediate gratification. With God, you often have to wait. Uh, so I will admit it publicly. I love money. I do. But because I'm a German, I don't love spending it. <laughs> I love saving it. Oh, man, I love saving it. I feel great when I can go four or five days without spending any money. The worst part of my week is when the gas prices goes up 10 cents a liter and I missed filling my tank. It's painful. I love saving money. I love seeing those numbers on my bank statement. 1,000, 2,000, 3,000. I don't know what that means, but they keep going up. 
4,000, 5,000. It's intoxicating. But then the MasterCard statement comes, and there's sticker shock. Oh, no! We're back to 2,000. And it hurts. It gets me right here, here, and especially here. Because that's my treasure, and that's where my heart is. It actually hurts right here. And if you're not careful, money will become your master. No wonder they call it MasterCard. <laughs> See, I would be thinking about money all the time. But it's not my master, because I use Visa. <laughs> it's because I made a choice years ago that God was going to be my master. He is the one who deserves to command my attention and my affection. But I still have to be careful because my ex-God is still flirting with me all the time and it's hard to resist. This rich man realized right away he could never love Jesus more than money. His heart was already spoken for and he went away sad because he had great wealth. Verse 24, Jesus looked at him and said, how hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. Indeed, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. Those who heard this asked, well, who then can be saved? The love of money is so powerful, no one can resist it. Unless, verse 27, Jesus replied, what is impossible... What is impossible for man is possible with God. And we know that it's all about dying to our old life and being born again, beginning your next life, living the resurrection in the power of the Holy Spirit. Loving money is something that comes naturally. Following Jesus is supernatural, and it's all about Jesus. He's the only way to eternal life. You don't have to look at religion. You just have to look at Jesus. Because eternal life is not based on what you do. It's based on what was done for you. Bill Heibel says the key word in religion is do. You need to do this. You need to do that. The key word in Christianity is done. It's already been done. It is finished. What is impossible with men is possible with God. Peter said to him in verse 28, we have left all we had to follow you. He did it. And that's exactly right from a financial standpoint. The, the moment Peter followed Jesus, it was the worst possible time financially. Peter had left everything. Because, and, and just after he struck it rich, in Luke 5, Peter had just made the biggest catch of his career. His boat was sinking under the weight of all those fish. What a profit. This would put him in a totally different income tax bracket. But Jesus asked Peter to follow him. And so Peter responded and left everything, including the fish. Peter said to him, we have left all we had to follow you. And that's how we become Christians. We renounce all other loyalties and affections and give our heart to Jesus. 
We all have to leave something. Whatever our heart is set on, we have to renounce that and give our heart to Jesus because there are no dual citizenships in the kingdom of God. To follow Jesus, we leave everything. And sometimes we have to do that more than once. Way back in the day, there was a guest speaker at a missions conference. He was a successful Christian businessman who was sharing his testimony. He talked about how uh, he, when he was a boy during the Depression, and his family was so poor he had to sell jo uh, job selling newspapers at a street corner. It was winter and it was bitterly cold, but he persevered for many weeks until he finally earned his first dollar. And he took that dollar and it was just so beautiful. This was not the Canadian peso, this was a real American dollar. What a treasure. And he pushed that dollar down into his pocket. And there was no way anyone was going to get that dollar from him. He'd worked too hard. But as he walked home, he passed by a church where the lights were on. And he went in to warm up. There was a service taking place. So he sat down and listened. And a missionary was speaking. And the missionary talked about the opportunities of bringing the gospel to people who didn't know about Jesus. And all they needed was money. And he said, the good news is we already have all the money we need. The bad news is it's still in your pocket. Well, the more that missionary spoke, the more that boy felt his dollar threatened. He pushed it down even further into his pocket. He worked so hard, no one is going to get that dollar from me. But he started to come under conviction. And before he knew it, there was an offering plate coming down the road towards him. And it was as if time stood still. This was the moment of truth. The angel stopped worshiping to watch. And then the businessman said, I'm here to tell you tonight that I'm worth millions today. But that night, in that church, I gave God everything. And then, just as he said that, a little lady stood up in the front row and said, pardon me, sir, but I dare you to do it again. Do it again. When I'm playing with my granddaughter, Emery, and I flip her around and give her a body slam onto some pillows, she look up at me with big eyes and say, again, again, do it again. That's what Jesus said to the church at Ephesus. Revelation chapter 2, verse 5. He said, remember the height from which you've fallen. Repent and do the things you did at first. Do it again. Put your heart into it. Paul revealed his heart in Philippians chapter 3, verse 8, when he says, I consider everything a loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Jesus Christ, my Lord, for whose sake I've lost all things. I consider them rubbish that I may gain Christ. No question where his heart was at. That's what it means to lay up treasures in heaven. 
So, where's your heart at? Do you need to do it again? Let's pray. Lord, we have left everything to follow you. So now help us to do it again. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.